Welcome to Amidon Planet. I'm your host, Joel Amidon. Thank you for joining me on this never-ending quest to learn how to teach better. Today on episode 101, that's right, we're starting the next 100 episodes of Amidon Planet. We've got a case of the Ericas. That's right, Dr. Erica Halverson, a previous guest on episode, what was it, 57 of Amidon Planet, uh, shared her book, How the Arts Can Save Education, Transforming Teaching, Learning, and Instruction. Uh, and then we also have Dr. Erica Litke, from the University of Delaware, a first-time guest on Amazon Planet, but I've known Erica Litke uh, for years, and what was interesting is uh, I've worked with both of them, uh, Erica more when I was a, a doc student at the University, Erica Halverson, <laughs> I'm going to do that a lot, Dr. Erica Halverson when I was a doctoral student at the University of Wisconsin, and then Erica Litke more when I've been a... Uh, uh, math teacher educator here at the University of Mississippi, work with them independently. Then all of a sudden, Eric Licky's like, you know, I know Erica Halverson. And they like knew each other, not only knew each other, but were best friends from when they were kids. And so awesome to have these two amazing people. They both do awesome work in their respective areas of education. And I thought it'd be interesting to have a conversation to share their collective story and what they have taken away from that story toward learning to teach better, again, in their respective areas uh, in education. And so thinking about that, the, the, and then, uh, proposing the conversation and then, and then having the conversation. And when you have people that it's like this asset based perspective and just a quick side note, sometimes when I talk to teachers and, and, you know, talk about, you know, kids that are in a classroom and it's like, oh, they're friends, you got to separate them. And then this episode is evidence for why you don't separate them because these are friends that know how to communicate with each other. And that's an asset. And so thinking about it, if one of them has a better relationship with content and the other one doesn't, but yet they know how to communicate with each other, they're probably the best teacher of that person than, than you as a teacher would be. Anyway, I don't know, I'm sorry, that was a tangent. But just seeing the power of friendship and then also talking uh, pretty deeply about learning to teach better, this it just ended up being an awesome conversation. So long that I had to cut out in the middle of the conversation, like, hey, we're going long. Is it okay if we go long? And they were both uh, agreed to, to keep the conversation going. So, so glad um, for Erica and Erica being willing to come on, uh, just join me on Amazon Planet, have this conversation. And I learned a lot about their uh, their past experiences and thinking about the importances of third space experiences, which we'll get into in the conversation. But this, what a great episode to kick off the next 100 episodes of Amazon Planet. And so without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Erica Litke and Dr. Erica Halverson. All right, Erica and Erica, thank you so much for coming to Amazon Planet. How are you, how are you Erica Litke? I am great, Joel. Thank you so much for having me. As you know, I've been dreaming of being on Amazon Planet, so I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. And a return guest to Amazon Planet, Erica yes. Halverson. How are you? N nice to be back and super happy to be on the same planet as my lifetime best friend. How fun is that? How often that, do you get to be on the same planet? Well, that, often, yeah, exactly. Um, as a secondary planet to our current planet. Um, but that was the funny, I mean, that was the funny thing. I think Erica, I was talking to you and you were, had, we had this thing about uh, my connection to Wisconsin and all of a sudden like, did you know Erica Halverson? I'm like, yes, she was on my committee and like, Hey, I was, I'm best friends with her. Yeah. <laughs> like, if it's helpful, um, you know, if it's less confusing, I can be Erica L in this conversation. It's been that's awesome. how we did it when we were kids. Is that yeah. what is that what it was? Because that was going to be actually question yeah. one. Was how, how are we going to do this here? 
Erica L and Erica H. I can be Erica H. When I was a kid, I was Erica R because Halverson is is the last name Mm -hmm. that I share with one of your other uh, former guests, certainly former mentors, I mean, uh, Rich Halverson. He was a guest um, in my classroom down here in Oxford, Mississippi. But yeah, right. I would love to that's have right. him. He'd be interesting too. So well, Erica H is perfectly fine. I will answer to Erica H. Fantastic. And fun fact is that we were two of five Ericas in our grade. <laughs> uh, and so there was an Erica H, but it's okay. In this context, yeah, yeah. you can be Erica H. No yeah. one will be confused. No, no one will be confused. I mean, if that Erica H wants to come name it on planet, then we'll talk about it. But um, so let's just get into brief introductions. I mean, and we'll uh, where each of you are at uh, with your positions and think about like the certain things that you do within those positions. So uh, Erica L, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, So I am an associate professor of mathematics education at the University of Delaware, um, which is how I came in contact with you, Joel, was through Mm -hmm. the math ed world. Um, But at UD, I'm also affiliated with the sociocultural and community-based approaches to education specialization and ed and social policy. I sometimes talk about myself as policy adjacent, um, so they let me play at that table sometimes. Um, And yeah, I've been at UD for um, nine years now, I think and uh, teach a range of courses, largely in math teacher education. Um, I teach uh, math content for teachers courses, specifically a course on fractions. Um, So I work with future elementary teachers uh, and middle school teachers, spending an entire semester thinking about fractions um, and how to teach fractions and how to learn fractions. Um, And I teach some doctoral courses in research uh, on math teaching, one in particular and another on research on math teacher education and teacher education and policy more broadly. Um, And really exciting lately, I've been teaching an undergraduate uh, freshman colloquium to first semester freshmen on inequality and schooling in the U.S., which looks at the ways public schools are positioned as the causes and solutions to social inequality. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The biggest social lever I think that we have. Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. Eric H. Yes. Give us an intro. (laughs) I will. So I'm Erica Halverson. I am a professor of curriculum and instruction at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Go Badgers, where uh, Professor Amadon received his PhD, and I had the pleasure of being on his dissertation committee. I am an arts educator, so I study how people learn in and through the arts. My background is as a performing artist, so most of the, the application work I do is looking at how performing arts-based practices and programs can change the way we think about what good teaching and learning look like. Um, I was writing as Erica was talking about ways that our work connects. So one way is I also teach future teachers. Um, I have taught for a long time a course called Arts Integration for Teaching and Learning, where Folks who are planning to be elementary school teachers participate in a range of arts-centric activities to reflect on how those activities influence them as learners and then how they can think about to, the ways to train to teaching. Um, and now that course includes both pre-service teachers and artists and activists on campus who want to become teaching artists. Mm -hmm. So I've moved into kind of a hybrid space where I get to work with 
traditional classroom teachers as well as folks who want to have teaching and learning in other parts of their lives. Um, I also sometimes teach doctoral courses. I teach a lot of qualitative research methods. So I get to see students from across campus, within education, outside of education. Um, and I have in the past taught a freshman seminar. Our version of that um, is called the FIG Freshman Interest Group. And I've taught several times a FIG called Representing Self Through Media, A Personal Journey Through This American Life, where students create and share this American lifestyle radio stories about their life experiences. I think I'll stop there. That's me. Oh, it's my 18th year as a professor. Ooh. So I've lived a whole Jewish lifetime um, as a <laughs> professor of education. Hi to me. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, y'all, man, I'm just writing down some of these classes and some of these things that y'all do. And it's like, there's some great ways to get experience, like interacting with both of you at both of your institutions. That's awesome. And my other connection to, uh, obviously connection to Wisconsin, my connection to Delaware is that the first place I interviewed for a job getting picked up by uh math ed legend, Jim Hebert at the airport was, was very fun. And I didn't have the courage to tell him that we are dissertation. He's my dissertation uncle. Uh, ah. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. the, he would the, have uh, loved to hear that. I too got picked up from the airport by him and yeah. I think couldn't speak actually. Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I got books. I got books with your name <laughs> on it. It's good. All right. <laughs> so how do you, okay, obviously you talked about being best friends, but what did that look like? So is this kind of like, uh, talking about like, uh, Matt and Ben back in Boston or Cambridge, but, uh, uh let's, let's talk about Erica and Erica. All right. Matt and yeah. Ben, I that, think. Very good. All right. So how did we meet? I don't even know that I know the answer to that question. We were in the there same is a class picture class. of us yeah. from kindergarten. Oh, So we were in the same class in kindergarten Beautiful. and that is how we met. And where was that? Uh, in New York City. So we both grew up in Manhattan and we went to a school called Hunter College Elementary School. Um, which was a school that was run actually as a subsidiary of Hunter College. So it was through the Board of Higher Ed, not the Board mm -hmm. of Ed, which gave it a certain amount of freedom, I think. Um, and there were, what, 50 kids in our grade? And we were two of the 50. Um, four, four out of the 50 were named Erica. Uh, so how do you, you know, go figure. There, there's um, some fractions there. There you go. There, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. the ratio of Erica's to David's, I think, would be an interesting one, actually. Yep. Um, it was also a good probability problem. If you pulled a kid out of a classroom, I think the chance that it, that kid was named Erica or David was high. Um, yeah, so I guess we were, and I think we were always friendly, but I think we became close probably a few years later. So I would say so, probably starting in third grade, right? When National the, Dance Institute came to our school. The summer, I think it was the summer before that, or maybe it was the same summer. Um, my, I came from a, a family whose parents um, felt it was appropriate to send your eight-year-old child away for the entire summer which I thought was normal until I lived in another part of the world and was like, oh, people don't aspire to get rid of their children <laughs> well, for I, the entire summer. You um, also have to add that like New York City in the summer is 
gross and oppressively hot, right? And so I think that was a pretty typical experience among a certain sort of social class, you know, middle to middle upper class families in New York. But we... Oh, go ahead. You go well, for it. Because I, I was just going to tell the story. Oh, no, I was just going to say that I don't remember how it happened. But Erica and I ended up going to the same summer camp. Okay. And, you know, now this is su- how much time do we have today? Joel? We, we got the hour. Really? Hey, hey, um, <laughs> because, uh, you know, in the beginning, I mean, very, very briefly. Right. Um. Back then, you know, I don't know how you found summer camps. There was no internet. There was no, you know, digital record of any of these things. So word of mouth, right? Word of mouth probably, Right, I guess. Mm -hmm. But however it happened, we ended up at a um, a essentially Jewish socialist summer camp that was co-occupied by a retirement space for Jewish socialists. Okay. Um, Poughkeepsie. In Poughkeepsie, New York. (laughs) Um, And both, and we went to this summer camp together for like five summers. Um, And we also, at that time, co-participated in the National Dance Institute, which Erica ended up working for and could tell you a lot more about. And and we've also both stayed connected to in our adult professional and research lives. Um, So we we were essentially at a best starting from about the age of eight, were pretty much attached together in school, after school and in the summers. I mean, I think I spent more Erica than any other human being, including my parents, um, from the ages of probably eight to 15, maybe? At least. Yeah. I think maybe even until we went to college. Yeah, probably true. I don't know. Maybe I got a boyfriend at some point in late high school and spent a little (laughs) less time with you, but like, yeah, I mean, so I think it's interesting. I mean, certainly at camp, we we are not the same birth year mm-hmm. so we were not in the same bunk ever which i think is interesting that's true but we you know all of our after school activities essentially we did together for years and years and years we Starting, both know to, we both know how to tap dance quite well go. actually um <laughs> uh and we <laughs> we um So it meant that like after school, I would go to Erica's house and Mm -hmm. read Archie comics and sort of do homework, but mostly read Archie comics and eat grilled cheese. The German lady who took care of me made us the same Wonder Bread American cheese grilled cheeses with tiny little cranberry juice cocktail juice boxes pretty much every day after school for seven years. Um, And then went to dance class that, you know, whatever else we did was sort of all together. And in the early years too, uh, your mom didn't drive. Mm-mm. So whenever anyone needed to get anywhere by car, my dad would take you and your mom wherever you needed to go. It was like our families were sort of intertwined. Yeah. Sort mm-hmm. of interesting. Um, so I was an only child or am an only child. Uh, Erica has siblings, but like Erica was the closest thing to a sibling that I had, yeah. I think, for sure. Awesome. Um, but so then, I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Erica. 
Well, I was just going to say, Erica brought up National Dance Institute, and I think, and she mentioned this, it, or she implied this, but I think that experience impacted both of us, and I think our career, I would argue probably our career trajectories mm-hmm. in parallel. Obviously, we do different things in education, yeah, yeah. but I think um, in really, really meaningful ways, and I think it's it's not an accident, probably, that we ended up where we did and that a lot of what I think we both do probably we would attribute back to that experience, which I think is interesting. Um, well, what, what would you attribute? I mean, so like from each of your perspectives, I mean, obviously you both mentioned it. So like, what, what is it about the national dance Institute and that experience and, and continue to experience that, that you bring to what you currently do? Well, so just for some, maybe some context. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Buying myself some time to think of the answer to your actual question. Um, and I'll let Erica jump in, but um, is, for context, NDI uh, was founded in the mid-1970s uh, by Jacques D'Amboise, who was a former principal dancer with New York City Ballet. And he was sort of in the tail end of his professional ballet career and decided, you know, what I want to do is support kids to love the arts, not become dancers necessarily, not, you know, become performers, but to um, learn through the arts the magic of the arts and the magic of lots of other things, right? And if they become professional dancers, aces, but I don't think that was ever the point. Um, and so he started this program working in schools and it was always integral to the program that it not be an add-on, that it not be after school, that it was part of the school day. And so they partnered with schools throughout New York City, across the boroughs, um, where they would a teaching artist and a musician would go in and teach an hour dance class to every class of, you know, I think at the time for us, it was third grade and fourth grade or whatever it was. It's changed over the years. But so when we were in third grade, every third grader, there were no auditions. Like you went and did the dance class. That was part of what you did. Um, And Jacques was this incredibly dynamic um, figure, incredibly creative, wild man um, who got everyone just so in love and so interested. And it was the kind of situation where everyone learned that they could do it. Whatever they brought into the classroom was capitalized on. We were a team, we were a group. We were gonna make sure everybody you know, could do it. And so everybody had this experience, whatever it was once a week. And then from that, there were some kids who were invited to sort of an additional scholarship program on Saturdays that both Erica and I did. And you know, from the age of nine, eight or nine till we were 15, we spent every Saturday in rehearsal with kids from all throughout New York City, from different racial backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, et cetera. Um, and all of this culminated in this giant end of the year performance, which when we were younger was, I don't know, 900 kids. I, wow. I might be making up that number on stage at a theater at Madison Square Garden at the same time all dancing with wild sort of celebrities of the day dancing with you or performing with you, Mary Tyler Moore. Keith Haring hand-painted our sets. Red grooms, artists. I mean, Jacques had had tentacles everywhere in the world, right? So like Mary Tyler Moore was in a dance with us. Um, Judy Judy Garland, not Judy Garland, sorry. Uh, Help me out. Uh, Oh, for God's sakes. What is her name? Why I are we middle-aged ladies? Uh, I'll think what? of it. Keep talking. Hold on. I'll consult the Oracle. Give me a second. <laughs> oh Internet, help us out. Um, I can't believe I can't think of her name. Anyway, uh, 
So all these, you know, people we understood, I don't think we didn't understand we were really young, but sort of knew to be well known, but didn't understand, you know, we're on stage with 900 kids dancing. Yeah. It was wild. Um, Judy Collins. Thank you. Thank Judy you, Collins. Internet. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. Thank you, Internet. Yes. Judy, Judy Garland. We're not that old. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Judy Garland, I missed a performance. And the Tin Man carried me on. <laughs> In 1938. Um, <laughs> No. So, uh, yeah. So I think that was a really formative experience as a kid. And we danced in all sorts of crazy places behind plate at Shea stadium in the Hermes flagship store on fifth Avenue in the clothes. Do you remember that? (laughs) I don't remember that. The people who worked there were sweating bullets. I mean, I think he was the Jacques was amazing, but you know, had ideas and he wanted us to emerge through the racks of clothing you know, these coats are $7,000, whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. It was incredible. Anyway, so that's a little bit about what NDI was. So I'll, now Erica, take over. Well, you know, I, I think, so there's a lot of things, but I think at the foundation, right, I'm an arts educator mm-hmm. and I design and run community arts outreach programs. Yeah. <laughs> and pretty much everything I learned about how to do that successfully came from my experiences in NDI, you know, everything from the commitment to sharing artistic ways of knowing and doing with every child. So when I work in a in a school, we insist on full inclusion classrooms for participation um, rather than this concept that participating in the arts is a reward for good behavior yeah, yeah. or a special treat for some particular set of kids. So, you know, and, and, and all the way to the idea that a performance of some with, of some substance is an inseparable part of what it means to know and do and make art. So those performances that Erica is talking about were consequential to all of us becoming artists and and thinking about art making as an integrated part of who we are as humans mm-hmm. and how we were able to engage in the act of human flourishing as we grew up. And so, I mean, quite literally everything that I learned about how to create successful community arts outreach work came from those experiences Ellen Weinstein, who was the second artistic director after Jacques retired, wrote the foreword to my book, which is called How the Arts Can Save Education. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I have stayed in touch with some of the artists who run the programs and spent a lot of time talking with them about how what does that mean about how you train teaching artists and What does it mean about how we can think expansively about who gets to be good at stuff um, and why the arts offer such a transformative platform for changing the way we look at who gets to be good at stuff. Mm. Um, And I'll just tell a a very brief story that um, thanks to Erica, actually I connected with a former NDI dancer who is now um, an actor and a model and a disability rights activist 
um, and her name is Jillian Mercado. And we, I interviewed her along with her teaching artist mentors for my podcast, Arts Educators Save the World. And uh, they told this incredible story about how having wheelchair dancers, uh, Jillian is a wheelchair user and she has uh, had other colleagues who were part of the program who were wheelchair users, how wheelchair dancers changed the way choreographers understood the function of a plie, which is that move you make when you have your feet together and you bend your knees and you straighten them back up again. Um, and obviously, if you're a wheelchair user, that move is not available to you. And so they developed a whole new vocabulary for what plie was so that wheelchair dancers represented this concept of breath um, on stage. Uh, and all of that is possible for me because of NDI and because of Jacques. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, I, just, I love what okay. the Erica L said about the, you brought all, all, all your gifts and abilities were, were brought into the space in order to be used to make art. And, you know, think about that, you know, think about that as an asset-based perspective and right. And think about all these different things that you're talking about with mm -hmm. bringing all that you have. And that's, that's, that's good. So that's, I think it for me, right. I was a high school teacher before I went into academia and I think about, I don't think there's a, th a single thing I do in my pedagogy, honestly, no matter what I'm teaching that wasn't influenced by our years in NDI. And part of it was as a student, Erica alluded to this, but I then went on, um, I interned with them a little bit in college. And my first job out of college was as the program director, I was running their in-school programs. And that's actually how I ended up in education to begin with, because I was reading narratives about what was wrong with public schools, you know, in the zeitgeist and whatever. But then I was going into 25 schools all across the boroughs of New York City, all over the place in all sorts of neighborhoods. And I was seeing exceptional things going on. And I didn't, it was such a disconnect to me, actually, yeah. um, what our narrative about public education is versus what I was seeing teachers and kids doing in schools every day. Um, and that's what sort of on the one hand got me into the trajectory of going off to grad school and becoming a teacher and then becoming, um, you know, a professor. But but for from a pedagogy standpoint, all of the things Erica sort of talked about are also true for me and remain true for me, right? I can think of things, um, one thing that is a hallmark of NDI's pedagogy is there's no front to the room. The front to the room changes, right? And when I think about how I teach and what I position as front and making sure that, you know, you couldn't hide in that classroom because the back became the front, mm -hmm. right? And so how I arrange something as simple as how I arrange the desks in my classroom and where I situate myself in the space, I can tie directly back to that. Um, this notion of, you know, creating consequential work, Erica said, and public displays of learning, right? We're not doing this for no reason. So what is the sort of public display at the end um, this idea that everybody has something to contribute, I think is something that I think about a lot in my pedagogy and how do we, you know, I think about all the time Jacques and Ellen and the other teachers would stand somebody up to demonstrate something. And it was never the person you thought was going to get picked. And sometimes you were terrified it was going to be you because you mm -hmm. were actually really unsure. And those were the moments where you would get picked right? And you would have to demonstrate something. And if you were unsure, he gave you a bodyguard, someone to do it with you, 
or you get sent into the hallway with two friends. Don't come back until Erica can turn on her left, right? There's a famous story in our childhood about me not being able to turn to my left. Anyway, but like, you know, and if and if she can't do it, I'm holding you responsible, he would say to the other person, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, and it was all in sort of jest and love, but um, but this notion of like, we're stronger together and and everybody's bringing these different strengths, right? And so it's like, man, look at so-and-so's energy. Look at so-and-so's, you know, smile. Look at how high they lift their knees. Look at the, and really isolating those strengths and those assets, I think is something that I try, you know, when I teach, I mean, I'm sure Joel, you can see the immediate parallels, right? To how we yeah, think about- Yeah, it sounds about... like complex instruction. It's like, right, <laughs> it's, right. like it's beautiful. Um, and, and something I've been thinking a lot about um, in my own writing is how to communicate that collaboration isn't just a tool to getting toward the real outcome, which is every individual learner being able to demonstrate their own individual expertise on a particular skill. But that collaboration itself is actually an outcome of learning. Um, And that for me is a corollary to what Erica was just saying, right? Which is we all knew from the beginning that you couldn't do what we needed to be done unless you were doing it together. Mm -hmm. And and not just together like a group project of like, well, there's four of us, so you, right? But actually the skills and strengths and work that you were putting in was necessary but not sufficient for getting the job done. Um, And, you know, I learned very young about what I was good at and what I didn't excel at and never felt like that meant I was not valued, but rather like, well, you better find that partner who's got long legs and (laughs) is nine inches taller than you because in order to do whatever this thing was, you were going to need that partner. Um, And that translates for me as well to the way we think about what good teaching needs to look like in any classroom. Yeah, I, that, you know, and just going into something about the, you talk about the consequential work. And so I, I had a chance to take one of your um, intro to qualitative methods classes and I was partnered with Moses Wolfenstein, which can't, can't. It's a real name. It's a real name. That's right. Um, And you had us go into, um, into some, I think it was some spaces where we had public spaces and just take notes and something was going to, and we would just take notes and try to come up with some sort of concept that we would flesh out through our notes and our collective noticings. And I think it felt like, again, you're talking about collaboration as an outcome, like just the point that, Hey, we both had a similar experience. We're then going to come together. And then we came up with some, it, it was like, it was almost felt like it was out of thin air, but it was actually like, Hey, this, this is what we both sort of saw. And like, to know that we were going to go into a space where we'd be doing a dissertation, which feels very lonely. But the fact is that you're surrounding yourself with a committee and people that can add, you know, that are on your team. They're part of it. I remember coming into your office when uh, you're on my committee and, and saying like, Hey, here's what I have. And you said, Hey, answer this question, this question, this question. And it was like, Oh yeah, that doesn't quite work. And like, and, but it was like, it, things got thrown away, but then things got better because of 
collaborate the collaboration and seeing that what we're doing is not something you can ever do alone right this idea of education research or to do you know to create quality products you know like there needs to be that collaboration then then those relationships also are something that then you take with you going forward and so i, I don't know like seeing again like making drawing these connections back to your experiences with ndi this is yeah this is amazing this is great I mean, I think one of the things that's so interesting about us, Erica, I don't know that we've talked about this explicitly, but Erica very clearly has arts training and like, you know, pursued that and connects her work to that. I actually have almost the same arts trade. Uh, I mean, college, we diverged, sort of. Uh, but I also have a pretty extensive arts training and I don't think about myself as an artist, but I think we've been influenced in similar ways by those experiences, Right. So as Joel, as you were talking, I was thinking too, you know, we did a lot of things, this is going to sound worse than I mean it, but we did a lot of things that we kind of had no business doing when we were <laughs> young, right? And I don't mean that in a like sneaking out of the house, you know, uh, kind of way, mom, that wasn't me, that was <laughs> yeah. um, uh, kind of way, but like, I, I mean, like, <laughs> we didn't have a lot of adult supervision in high school on the things we cared about. And so if you wanted to do it, you did it, mm. right? So we, Erica directed the musical for our high school and I and another Erica choreographed it. And like, yeah, we had, I mean, we were all of 17, right? Mm -hmm. We had done theater, we had done dance, but certainly had not been trained formally in any way. And it was literally like, hey guys, let's put on a show a little bit. Um, and we had no business doing that. And yet we did it, right? And I think that sometimes in academia, you need a little bit of that, like, well, I guess I'm going to teach myself how to do the thing and figure out the thing. And here we go, right? And I think, you know, you've done that a lot of times in your career, for sure. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, yeah, you're well-trained. I don't mean it. <laughs> no, it just makes me think that, like, when you're young, you don't even know what imposter syndrome is. Mm -hmm. So you're yeah. like... Yeah, I guess, you know, we're 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 making a musical. Sure. Let's make a musical. And which I, by I, the way, it was not just a musical. True. It was hair. So like let's also figure out how to convince an administration to let us do this musical. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And the degree to which, and to go back to the collaboration thing, which is what makes me think of the degree to which we all trusted that the different ones of us, I mean, there were 16 year olds running the entire technical aspect of theater making. They, you know, the Feld brothers knew how to do all the lights and sound. And we were just like, great, will you make us some lights? And they yeah. did. And there was never a question that they wouldn't do it and that there would be, that anyone would tell them that they couldn't. Yeah, it was, that. so that's sort of an, the other side, maybe Joel, of the really great fortune that Erica and I had growing up are these sort of twin, twin engines of NDI yeah. and being in a public high school that was, was, based in a kind of student-driven inquiry model um, that we 
we both, and we, you know, it's a relatively small N, although I can think of at least three other humans who lived at that intersection um, where we had the heavy, heavy mentorship of National Dance Institute, and then the laboratory space of our high school that to set us free to be like, well, you learned all this stuff from Jacques, now go make a thing. Mm-hmm. Which was really in thinking, I hadn't sort of thought about it in yeah. this way. It was really a just a lucky combination of features that that we had the privilege of being part of. And probably due to some benign neglect on the part of adults, to be perfectly honest. But it also makes me think about the ways in which teachers can get out of the way, right? Mm. And when I think about the kinds of work and, you know, my math for teachers courses that I want like students to do, right? I don't, I want them to figure their way out through it. I want them to to have confidence that they, you know, can find cool things without my intervention um, and things like that. And I, you know, I think I, it's hard sometimes to convince folks that they have it in themselves to do that kind of creating and thinking and working. I find that still coming out of COVID, it is a particularly difficult time to do that with students. I find that students are generally more cautious and less confident in their ability to quote unquote, do the right thing. Um, And it's something that I've thought a lot about actually in my teaching in the last two years, because Mm -hmm. that used to come much more naturally um for students in my classes and now comes comes less so and requires more scaffolding um on my part but then so like then there's also the argument for like okay so how do we create more of these you know experiences like you're talking about and like how do we you know put things out there like just with the example that you talk about with open soccer if i said that right but like you, you know even like like a kid you know tells a story am i telling the right story and like no matter what you tell a story we're gonna make a creation we, we can make a creation out of it don't worry about it you know like it's not like it's the right story you know it's your story you know it's a good enough story um but like think, even thinking of the other uh spots where um what got me thinking with uh um you just having the confidence in that you know even thinking about the the different uh abilities and uh, creations that you could come up with just given that space, given the ability to, to make mistakes. Right. And we talk about, you know, in the math ed world, like the idea of productive struggle, right. But that also means like, Hey, you're going to have some struggle, right. That you're going to have some opportunities to engage in something and, and have to get some effort, right. And, and collaborate in order to get to the other end. But what other like when you think about as we keep talking, I bet you some other things keep popping up with the influence of NDI or or some other of these like arts experiences. Like what else like you think like comes to the surface? I don't know, Erica. Erica H, you're kind of nodding a little bit there. I'm thinking out loud. I mean, I think uh, something that may not be interesting to anyone other than us is. <laughs> How? My mom's listening. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Great. Oh, our moms are also listening. <laughs> yeah, they, that's good. Hi, Nancy. Um, yeah. <laughs> and Barbara, have Hi, you Barbara. heard any more 1950s moms' names? <laughs> yeah. than Nancy and Barbara. Um, that you know, Erica and I, in many ways, so neither of us 
set out to be college professors. What? No. What? <laughs> and neither of us set out to be in education as a field. That's right. And so I think the sort of convergence is really interesting to me, right? So that, so that, you know, Erica mentioned after high school, right? I studied, I studied theater to, I, I was intending to become a professional actor. Um, and when that path took me more to the craft than the career, and I became really excited about both how learning looked in the theater making space and how teaching looked in the theater making space. I came around the side, you know, when I, when I went to graduate school, I'd never taken an education class in my life. And so my preparation for this work came really in more of the form of like, for lack of a better word, an academic way. Right. And Erica, I think, I don't want to speak for her, but I will, because we've already established that that happens um, before each other, that, you know, Erica, I think, came to it in a practice-based way, having been at NDI, and I think been felt ready to move from kind of setting the conditions for people to do teaching and learning as a program manager to actually doing the work in the classroom. And then after 10 years of being really successful at it, going like, oh, you know, I think there's like a level of abstraction here that I'm ready to think and talk and learn about. And, and so now, you know, 30, 25, 30 years later, we sort of converge in the same <laughs> place. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting. And again, may not may only be interesting to the three of us and our three mothers, but yeah. Is, well, is it's funny when you said that because I also, you know, I was a math major and an English major. And I was an English major because I liked reading and I could get A's in all my classes. And I was a math major because people thought I couldn't do it. Right. Mm. People were like, oh, you're gonna major in dance, right? And I thought, what? So what's like the furthest thing from that that I could possibly do? um, to prove you all wrong. Um, and, but I did this thing on the side in college where I worked at, and then ultimately ran an after-school program. And I was like, I went into education kicking and screaming, you know, I loved kids. I thought being around kids was great. Kids were great, but I wasn't ever going to be a teacher. And it took me you know, five or six years to get from that point to the classroom. Mm -hmm. which is interesting. But I think you're right. It was from a re being around schooling that got me to realize the importance of education. But when I went to grad school, that was the first education class I'd ever taken either. I didn't know what I was talking about. Well, I wonder, and this is just a, an observation in hearing you all talk about this, is like when you all maybe got exposed to other people's experiences in schools and, and seeing like, maybe that the, the potential wasn't being realized, right? Or or that there was, you know, you talked about the different perspectives that uh, Eric L that people had of the schools that you were going to like, no, there's some awesome stuff going here. But even to think like 
almost like schools as like a playground where you could do some amazing things like as this powerful social lever, but then also to the, the kinds of things that you could see kids create uh, within and, and getting to see the, their potential uh, where they get to use all their gifts, not just, you know, these, you know, narrow, like narrow gifts that are being used within uh, certain spaces. But I don't know, is, is, is there something there with that with regards to like, let's tap into the potential of what these spaces could be. So, so talk about not knowing what you don't know. When I graduated from college and my friends and I started our first community arts organization, which is now called Playmakers Lab, at the time was called Barrel of Monkeys in Chicago, we had been inspired by performing stories written by kids, which is something that we had done, but we had received those stories from local area schools and had never really had any interaction with the kids. And we, in like 1998, were like, but what if we just went into schools and taught kids writing? And we did. Um, we, you know, got hooked up with some you know, nonprofit organizations that were serving communities of kids in the after-school space. And we tried out writing exercises. And then those kids told their teachers and their teachers invited us in. And then we got connected with other community organizations. And through that process became teaching artists whose main value in retrospect is that we were able to see the genius in kids whose genius was not readily apparent through the structured activities that they were assigned to do in schools. Um, but we didn't design for that because we literally didn't know what we didn't know. We just thought, what would you have liked when you were in third grade and some 20-something artists came in to do play improv games and craft dialogues and perform them. And that's how we initially designed what we were gonna do. Um, so I think, and very quickly, like within a year or two, I think discovered that the main gift we were giving was centering the experiences of kids who were clearly not able to be centered in the other parts yeah. of life. Erica L, did you have anything to say about that with regards to like the, almost like the, well, which is even what, what Erica H said was just like, Hey, why don't we go do that? Like, and no one said like, well, no one's ever done this before. <laughs> like, That's how I became a teacher. I mean, I actually think like this is maybe embarrassing to admit and particularly on a math ed podcast. And I think like in my professional role, I might be horrified if somebody else told me this story. But, um, you know, I, what you said, Erica, that resonated was this notion of listening to kids' voices, right? And listening to what kids have to say. So I had no intention of being a high school math teacher at all. That was not on the radar. I was running an after-school program in the Bronx. I was living my life. It was time for me to switch to a different job for reasons that aren't worth going into. And I was like, I'm going to go back to arts ed. I'm going to go back to nonprofit. I was interviewing at theater companies. I was, you know, that's what I was going to do. Um, and met a, uh, met a 
woman at a wedding. I was at a wedding and a college friend and a mutual friend of ours, basically the college friend and I was at this wedding. And so <laughs> funny story, her name was also Erica, but at any rate, Absolutely. Um, this particular Erica uh, was a teacher in New York city, a math teacher. And so our mutual friend was like, Oh, you're both named. Er this is actually how a lot of things in my life happen. <laughs> you're both named Erica and you have these similar interests. You should talk to each other. Um, so we end up chatting at the wedding and she says, you know, you should come swing by our school. We do these roundtable presentations at the end of every semester, every June or whatever it was, um, where the students across all grades and all subjects present a portfolio of their learning. We have a waiver from standardized tests, and this is how our students, you know, are assessed, basically, and we get external people to come in and do this. And I thought, that sounds pretty cool. And kind of like exactly what I think in an ideal world school should be, but I'm sure it's like not really that in practice, but like, yeah, I'll show up. I like kids. And so I went to this, what they called round tables that I was at 11th grade round table. And I was, you know, I don't know, it was an algebra two class or something, geometry class. I can't remember. And I was put at this table and I sat there for 90 minutes and listened to kids talk deeply mm. about math and answer questions and put on brilliant displays and, you know, all these different ways. And I was sitting next to this guy and I was like, man, these kids are awesome. You know, uh, this is great. I was asking all these questions because you know, I'd been a math major. I knew some stuff and um, turned out I was sitting next to the principal who looked at me and said, what are you doing tomorrow? Um, and I said, I, you know, I don't know whatever I was doing. And he was like, I think you should come in and we need a math teacher for next year. Why don't you come in? And he struck me up in conversation, found out that I'd been a math major and said, and I had a master's in ed policy of all things. And he said, why don't you come in and talk to me more about working at the school? And I did. I went in the next day and uh, we had a conversation about teaching math, which I had never done to anyone, <laughs> to be clear. And I think by seven o'clock the next morning, I had a job. I mean, it was the weird, like, oh it was goodness, wild. Yeah. Um, I had a math major and a master's in education that was not in teaching. Um, and I thought, I have no business doing this. Like, are we sure? I mean, I think it was one of those job interviews where you tell somebody not to hire you and they're like, no, no, no. So I suspect they were pretty desperate in retrospect, but um, but I mean, it was such an exceptional place that really did center um, and still does to this day. I, I'm speaking about it in past tense only because I don't work there anymore. But, um, you know, I think for me, a, a huge portion part of who I am was influenced by the years I taught at Eastside Community High School in New York City. Um, go Eastside, go Tigers. Uh, but, you know, um, that was a project based learning school that focused on portfolio based assessment that was really about kids developing a deep understanding of ideas and learning how to communicate that and love math and be into, you know, did everyone love math? No. Did we work real hard to try to get people to feel successful in lots of different ways? Yes. Right. And that that's what I learned that teaching math was. That's how I learned to teach math was in that environment. So actually when I got to grad school and that realized that wasn't the norm, that actually was sort of a shock to my system. And I feel like I'm trying, been trying to figure out ever since how to navigate that tension. Right. Like I know yeah. what school can look like. I know well, there's another way. Well, think about the ownership that those kids had talking about their their learning. I mean, that's that's what you want, right? Like versus like we're gonna own it and saying like here's what you need to learn. No, no, no. Here's what I did learn. And yeah. yeah. It, um, in my in my arts integration class that I'm teaching right now, we have 
students do a culminating project where they create um, either an arts integrated unit that might belong in schools or an arts program that they might deliver in some sort of informal arts organization. And we've just started the conversation and we're doing some backward planning, backward design stuff, kind of a la Wiggins and McTighe and sort of introducing like, here's one way you can think about how you might make stuff. And so we were giving them a bunch of different prompts. And one of the prompts was, here's a standard from fifth grade literacy or whatever. How can you start to build something backward from that? And I mentioned this class is, is quote unquote mixed, meaning some folks who are planning to be classroom teachers and other folks. And uh, one of the amazing teaching artists who's a spoken word poet um, and is here in at UW on a spoken word poetry scholarship, raised her hand and said, for the lay people in the room, what's a standard? And uh, it was such an amazing reminder of how in the grand scheme of people who care about teaching and learning and creating powerful experiences for young people, how little those things that that in the sort of discourse we place so much emphasis on, how little they matter. I mean, this is a college student. She's been to school her whole life, obviously. She's mm -hmm. been highly successful. And she likes it so much she wants to teach. And she was like, what is that thing again? And so uh, it just reminds me, Erica, of like how you got to graduate school and then realized that like, oh, there's a whole other like sort of general way we talk about formal teaching and learning that was like not part of your experience at all. To be clear, it had been part of my experience as a student, right? Like we'd all sort of lived through it, but it was so absent from my experience as a teacher, which was interesting. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think about all of the ways in which, you know, we're so tied to the thing we have to get to by the date and the other, right? Like, and that tension we face with pre-service teachers, particularly those who are student teaching, who are like, we were with you until we got into a classroom and now we have this different set of concerns. And how do you support people to understand that that first set of concerns is still, right? The focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and no matter what, like the, the idea that turning kids loose that are passionate about learning, right. And, and like, you know, it, using their gifts and abilities uh, in different spaces, like, you know, that's kind of what we want, right. Not the, all right. Did you, did you meet standard OAI 1.29 or, you know, <laughs> like, that's probably, but we wrote probably, it on the board. So yes, right? yes. Check. We got that. What what is the standard? That's that's a good one. It was great, and she said it with no malice. Right, she just was yeah. like, "What what is that?" <laughs> yeah. So I we 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 this is a conversations have been a long time coming, and I'm I'm so happy that we we've had a chance to have it. But before we we wrap it up here, you maybe have had some opportunity to think about some things, and maybe add some. Hey, I want to make sure that there's a couple points or some things about our experience together or your experience at your very your, your respective institutions that you're like I here's something I want to make sure to to share uh and I want to give a, a, some space to do that if there's anything that's still left on the table I'm reading Erica's mind she wants to tell the story of the time that she was standing next to me at an ARA reception and I was made to tap dance that's the story you want to tell no I <laughs> going to say a much more general thing, which is more personal, which is I think there's a very important scientific phenomenon that we have not yet discussed, 
which is commonly known as the oh. Erica Lichter effect, <laughs> which is the idea that it, it's it's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but it is much more involved because essentially Erica will never go to a place where she does not encounter someone who knows pretty deeply either someone else that she knows or uh, an experience that she's had. Or just to give one example, my our, our my good friend, Matthew Berland, who's a colleague of mine here at UW-Madison, one year, the big education research conference at ERA was in Chicago. And we, Matthew and I used to live in Chicago. And so Matthew was working at a coffee shop miles from Blocks, the conference. Which like in Chicago is miles. It was in miles. It, I could tell you exactly where it was. It was like walkable. In my mind, you took a thirty-minute walk, miles away, <laughs> and s- somehow Erica overheard him talking, or he overheard her talking, and they—he he made fun of what I was doing. I was working on my computer, sitting next to him, like I don't know, coding in Stata or something, something for my dissertation, and he saw what I was doing and made a crack about it. That's how it started, and then lo and behold, turns out to be. You know, not just like, oh, you work at the University of Wisconsin, but like probably my like most proximal colleague. <laughs> right? Like Matthew and I had offices across from each other at the time for like 10 years. Um, so we had not discussed the Erica Lickie effect. And I think it's important for listeners, especially those who know Erica, who may ha- may have affirmed for themselves the existence of this scientific phenomenon. I'm actually willing to bet that there are enough people listening to this podcast who are like, wait a minute, I know both of them. Because it turns out, so she talked about it like six degrees of Kevin Bacon. I would like call it that, but with like some chaos theory thrown in. Like I've walked down the street of Paris once in my 20s and one (laughs) of Erica's college roommates or whatever was walking towards me and I was like obviously hello right like stuff like that um like all of the things that had to happen for me to be walking down that street in Paris while this individual was right like the butterfly flapped its wings somewhere and whatnot but I think a lot of these connections are actually related to you Erica H you talk about this with other people I mean it does happen all the time that is true I'm just caught up in the chaos of the scientific phenomenon. That's right. I'm swirling. It's like if you're the 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 oh god, I don't know. If you're don't don't do it. Okay, never mind. (laughs) Well that's like folks. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Well, that's why we're excited so excited to do this because like, hey, let's let's get the Erica's on and and we'll we can talk. (laughs) Um but we are like one thing that you and I, I think Erica have talked about a couple of times, like we typically, you know, we don't live in the same state anymore. You know, we spent the first, I don't know, 20 years of our lives attached at the hip. Right. And then Erica has been in the Midwest pretty much since college. And I have not, despite her best efforts, been in the Midwest since then. Um, but it's amazing. You know, we like share a hotel room at ARA or we like, you know, or when Rich is willing to <laughs> let me sleep on the couch or whatever, or not come. But, you know, it's it's really fun, I think, for us to co- be at a point in our careers where like, we 
care about and think about a lot of the same things that we do it in very different spaces. Yeah. And it's just been really fun to have that. And I'm so grateful for it. I wanted to say that out loud. Yeah. I feel like I've just, it's like uh, some layers of the onion have been peeled back uh, or <laughs> some more pleasant, uh, uh, I don't know. Onions are great. Is there um, like a B-roll where we tell the story, like the embarrassing stories or that doesn't happen on this version of the podcast? That's for the Patreon. That's, that's, a, yeah, that's the after dark. <laughs> exactly. The after dark version. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I did actually want to ask, well, two more questions. One is just, you're both ex- very experienced teachers. You think deeply about teaching and learning. Like what's the best thing you've done lately that has helped your teaching? What's the best thing lately? It doesn't have to be the most brilliant thing lately. Okay. Just what, yeah, I, there you go. I don't know. I don't know that this is best. And this is not my thing. I took it. Yeah, no, no, no. Absolutely. Someone else. Um, but I have taken it across all of my classes now. So uh, Sarah Vanderwerf, who's a mathematics educator, high school teacher or former high school teacher, I believe mm-hmm. she's very active on, on uh, the site formerly known as Twitter and other spaces um, does these name tents with her high school students. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. So for folks, you know, we've all seen like a name tent where you have your name in a classroom and whatever, but on the inside of the name tent, she prints out this form and it's a communication form back and forth. And there's a box at the top Sort of you imagine a, a, you know, an eight and a half by 11 paper on its side split kind of in half. There's a box at the top and a box at the bottom. And she does it, I believe, if I remember her original blog post for the first week of school. So there's sort of five of these two column mm-hmm. or two row, sorry, five columns, two rows. And up top, it's like student comment and below it says teacher response, right? And there are small prompts or it just says, ask me a question or whatever. And the idea is that she, for the first week of school, gives a chance for students to write back. They write to her at the end of a class. She writes back to them. It takes, you know, I don't know, 15 seconds a student. It's not it's not a particularly heavy lift. And I started doing it in my math classes um, with my students. And we'll do it for the first, you know, month, right? We, I see them twice a week. So it's maybe the first two and a half weeks of, of class. And I, in the freshman class I'm teaching, I brought it over to that in the seminar. And both times I've taught the seminar, we just, I just keep adding sheets. Um, And it's absolutely my favorite thing I've done because it allows me to have an ongoing conversation with students. It's a temperature check. Students use it for all sorts of things. And they have comments have ranged from like a really, you know, insightful thing. I didn't feel comfortable sharing in the whole class discussion, but I wanted to make sure I put on the table to something that's not working well in class that mm-hmm. I'd like you to address, to what's your favorite sushi restaurant in Philadelphia. Like really it runs the gamut. Um, sometimes people draw me a picture and it astounds me that they keep wanting to do it after the first five class sessions and they do it every class. And we have this back and forth. I feel like it opens up the space of community in ways that nothing else I have tried um, has done. And I I credit a lot. I, I've never met Sarah, but great credit to Sarah for this because yeah. it's really spectacular. Um, and I, I think it has, de- it's supported me in developing a relational classroom in ways that very little else that I've tried has been as successful yeah. at doing. No, I, I'll, I'll put a, uh, a link to, uh, that, uh, yeah. that thing from Sarah. Cause uh, Jen Wolf, uh, 
you know, Jen from yeah. Math Ed World, she uh, shared that with me during the pandemic. And it was like, elect, do an electronic version of that same thing to try to build community. Awesome. Yeah, that's a great one. How about you, Eric H.? Oh, that's so rad and so specific. I was going to say <laughs> pretty general, which is um, I am very bossy. And sometimes that means that I have, I make all the decisions about how a learning environment should proceed and I have in my undergraduate class a fantastic TA and collaborator, and I'm listening to her. And that is changing the way this particular group of students engages with this content and process and materials. And I am super grateful to be able to listen more to a collaborative teacher. Awesome. That's great too. Yeah. I mean, just even trying to, you know, collectively design a space. I mean, that goes back to your thing. Like how do we, how do we work together towards those things? Awesome. All right. So this is a chance. Uh, last thing is uh, things to promote. So um, we mentioned a couple of things. Uh, Erica, if you want to go through the, you got the book, the pod, a couple podcasts that we can promote, but anything else that's out there? The, the main thing I want to encourage folks to listen to, if they have not listened to Arts Educators Save the World, um, I do love it. It's super close to my heart. That's where successful artists interview mentors about the impact arts education has had on their lives. But specifically, as um, episode as season two drops, episode three of season two, which will drop on Monday, November 20th, is an episode co-hosted by the lovely and talented Erica Litke because we interviewed mathematician Jordan Ellenberg, who oh. is also a well-sold novelist mm -hmm. and was has been a creative writer most of his life. And his high school creative writing teacher, who was a is a remarkable was she is living, is a remarkable um educator and pedagogue and creative type um, was on with Jordan and with Erica and I. So if you are a math adjacent person, that particular episode of Arts Educators Save the World, I think is for you. Awesome. Very good. Wow. Well done. Er Erica L on it. Guest on a podcast and a hosting podcast. Look at that. I mean, I told yeah. you it was my bucket list item for 2023. So I nailed that one. Yeah, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a really fun conversation and shades of some similar ideas too. I think a lot of that conversation is about the ways in which teachers create space for students to build things, right? Yeah. Um, that they didn't even know they could build. That's right. Um, that's awesome. And, and I think that's, that's it was a nice reminder of the importance of that. Um, I have no other podcasts, but um, I have a newish paper out um, in math ed. Uh, so that side of my life um, that I'm pretty excited about that is with uh, two co-authors, Julian Corvin, who's an assistant professor at Illinois State and a doc student at UD, um, Kateri Sternberg, that um, in Journal of Math Teacher Education, 
that looks at both instructional practice and um, curricular materials side by side. So a lot of times in our field, we'll do things like analyze the opportunities presented by curriculum materials, or we'll analyze instruction. And we had this really nice um, data set thanks to Leslie Dedeker's project at Boston University. Um, she generously shared with us which had videos of six teachers teaching the same three algebra lessons, six teachers at six different schools, but we also had access to the curriculum materials that they used. And so we sort of analyzed those side by side to look at the kinds of algebra specific features of instruction that the curricular provided and the ways in which those manifested in enactments of the lessons um, and the ways in which we might think about how to design educative features and curricula such that they are taken up in the ways we want them to be. So what we saw was, for example, um, what was in the curriculum was often used. What was suggested was done, right? But when folks went deeper and enacted these uh, practices in more depth, there was much more variation. And so, you know, I think this has implications for both how we think about researching instruction um, and curriculum side by side, but also how we think about designing supports for teachers if we want them to engage in particular types of practices. So I'm pretty proud of it. Yeah, awesome. Well, it sounds like a great collaboration, an interesting, interesting project. That yeah. Um, and we could put links to everything that we've mentioned, and then also everything that we just we just stated here at the end here. But thanks again for both of you for being willing to uh, engage in this uh, free flowing conversation. But I, I was, uh, I loved it, and again, I got a chance to to see a little bit about how the different, uh, pers how you've each taken up this, these, this common experience, uh, into your different practice. So thank you so much for being willing to, to come on and have a conversation. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for having us, Joel. This was awesome. So it's, it's a time of, uh, of being thankful and I am thankful. I am thankful for that. My path crossed the path, the paths of those two Erica's, Erica Halverson and Erica Litke. Uh, I am better for knowing both of them, not only for obviously the joy that they have and what they do, but also how they um, look at the world and wanting to find the best in people and then seeing that come out within their teaching. And so, so again, another reason why to have this uh, platform to share some of these things, because like, I, I love having these conversations and I love the fact that somebody can choose to hit play and then be a part of that conversation as well. So um, lots of things were mentioned in this conversation, lots of resources and stuff. And, and also want to point to previous episode with uh, Erica Halverson, but we'll also point to her book and, and all the different resources. So if you're looking for those, you can head to the show notes at amadonplanet.com forward slash episode 101, 101. And other than that, that's going to do it uh, for this episode of the Amazon Planet podcast. Show, again, show notes can be found at amazonplanet.com forward slash episode 101. Lots of different resources and um, some podcasts that uh, Erica Halverson has done, but then also to the, the things that they've got going on that they mentioned at the end of the episode. We'll put links to it in the show notes. So lots of stuff to check out there. So and if you're looking for ways to support the podcast into the next 100 episodes, you can subscribe, rate, and review, and share this episode, which will allow more people looking for similar content to find it. In addition, you can subscribe to the Amazon Planet download, which contains teaching resources and updates from Amazon Planet. Anywhere that you see, join the email list at AmazonPlanet.com. You can... Um, 
go ahead and join the email list and you'll get uh, editions of the Amazon Planet download. You can also submit a question, comment, or suggestion to the mailbag by sending an email to joel at amazonplanet.com. In addition, I'm always looking for opportunities to work with those who are looking to lead people to love others through teaching. If you have an event or opportunity to share, you can either send an email to joel at amazonplanet.com or head to amazonplanet.com slash about to fill out the request to call form. Finally, check out the Amazon Planet store, Amazon Planet Bookshop. Links are in the footer at amazonplanet.com, where your where your purchase supports the production costs of the podcast. Thank you for spending time on Amazon Planet. Um, thanks to Erica Litke and Erica Halverson for sharing their time and expertise and, and some laughter. Uh, appreciate them. Thanks to Matt Mifflin for the music in this episode. And finally, thank you to all of you out there learning to teach better and be the good in the world by investing in the lives of others. This world is a better place because you have decided to use the gifts you have been given to serve others. Thank you for all that you do. Peace. Peace.